Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where our goal is to help you find health and community through movement. I'm Molly Herford, a writer, coach, and yoga teacher. And I'm Peter Glassford, an endurance coach and kinesiologist. Every week, we're talking to athletes and experts who can help you lead your best active, adventurous life. Whether you're a gravel racer, a marathon runner, or you just got out on your first bike ride yesterday, we're here cheering you on. You can also visit us online at consummateathlete.com for coaching information and training tips, nutrition advice, yoga flows, bike skills, and more. And now, let's get into this week's episode hello hello welcome back to the consummate athlete podcast peter how's it going it's going well it is raining and we dodged rain on our weekend adventure so i'm happy about that yes we finally had a clean run at the la cloche silhouette trail in killarney provincial park uh if you're not familiar with ontario it's honestly it's one of the nicest trails in ontario it's just this beautiful hard one and it's a nice it's about what is it it's just under 80 kilometers or 50 miles uh Uh, very 2800 meters of climbing something that uh, to that effect uh yeah we've hiked it a few times people who've listened to the podcast know we've attempted the run a couple times and just you know due to whatever circumstances in our control or out of our control have never been successful until now so well and we had eric batty on uh, in a past episode talking about it and him he and i uh ran it many years ago i think maybe 10 or 11 years ago uh, and he has held the FKT a couple different times over the years as well. So we talked to him about more hiking it, I think, uh, when mm-hmm. he was on. And then we also had, who else did we have on? Uh, well, we've had on the both of the current uh, unsupported record holders, both Ryan right. Atkins and Lindsay Webster. Although, man, now we're digging way back in the archives because they were some of our first guests, which is pretty sweet when you think about like all that they've accomplished as yes. like world champions o- obstacle in course. and yes. Spartan racing. Uh, and we had one more episode too. Uh, well, I think we've talked about Clarny like many, many times. So yeah, all of those episodes and more if you if you want to check out the show notes. But we'll do a, a full episode sort of talking about that trail because I know a lot of people, especially Ontario listeners, are very intrigued by it. I know we're we're certainly not the only ones to even go out to try to run it in the like in this month. Right. Uh, there have right. been a few attempts. Uh, recently so yeah we'll we'll get yeah. to that yeah and i think covering some of the the safety and and preparation and, and maybe the you know considering the the walking option first the uh the hiking in the backcountry enjoying it you might even say uh is, is worthwhile although we have gotten called out for our fast packing as enjoying uh stance before but yeah no probably three is the minimum yeah uh, but yeah. still is pretty vigorous speed is relative anyway uh, that said, so, you know, this this run was not rainbows and sunshine. I'm not going to lie. This run was mentally probably, I was just saying to Peter, on I can count on one hand the number of races where I've had to really, like, dig deep into that mental well to, you know, get through a tough time or something. Right. Yeah. So some of these recent episodes we've been doing uh, around mental preparedness and Stress yeah, reduction last say, week with Andrew Bernstein. A lot of people were really excited about the stress reduction episode and found a lot of value from that. Uh, so we kind of wanted to come at the the mental performance angle and sort of this you know holistic approach to the consummate athlete. In the past few episodes, you know, we've had uh, Dr. Mark Bubbs on talking about peak forty, so sort of entering that middle age as like a happy, healthy athlete. We've had Becky Kane on talking about scheduling your workouts and making time for working out uh, and productivity. We've had uh, nutritionists or registered dietitian Stevie Smith on to talk about some some blood markers as well as sports nutrition. Right, right. So uh, making sure that your body's functioning, you know, given what you're doing for movement and you know stress reduction, and also how you're eating. And then we also talked about eating on that one. Yeah, yeah. So I thought you know I wanted all of those to lead up to talking to a couple different mental performance consultants. Uh, today we have Val Hat on. She's a mental performance consultant. She does a lot of work with Cycling Canada and with paracycling here in Canada. Uh, just all around awesome woman. Um, but I, I wanted to kind of have all of those episodes before we got right into the mental performance consultant because I I think sometimes we sort of jump from talking to a coach about you know cadence and watts and power numbers and whatever on the bike and then we go right into the sports psych and i think there is that kind of like wide stretch between the two that often kind of gets missed so i feel like we've had a really really good uh sort well, what of what do you think what are in the middle what are you what are we missing well i think the middle is that like 
where are we making time for our workouts and like our meditation, you know, if we're not scheduling our meditation or like this mental performance stuff, does it actually get done? Right. You know, if we're so stressed about our, our life and our job and whatever, do we really have the capacity to be focusing on our race day visualizations and like dealing with race day jitters and stuff? And I think we, we tend to kind of just go straight to like the race day sports psych and we sort of leave a lot of other stuff. When are we, when are we actually training? Right. And that's Andrew Bernstein. He was on last week with the stress, uh, breaking the stress cycle. Uh, that was his concept originally. I think he called, uh, his book, uh, or his concept, the active insight step that we went stepwise process, the seven steps that we went through. I think he called it something like mental yoga or something like that because he wanted to bring this idea of, of training, right? You're not doing it just when, you know, you get a divorce or something, you've been working through all these like stressful thoughts as training, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think sports psych and I think mental performance consultant, I think that all has such a, a time and a place. And, you know, we don't just talk about race day in this episode, like far from it. Mm-hmm. We go way more into sort of your everyday and your training. And, and embedding stuff. it, right? I think sometimes there's, when we talk about holistic or we talk about um, this this idea of training, it's, it's actually bringing intention to the workout today I was talking to a younger athlete and you know they just got back to finally you know a year and a half into this doing group training which is so important for these younger athletes is the social aspect but you know we can say that and just nod our heads but the social aspect beyond just enjoying sport and friends it's also the idea that you're riding with people and there's always going to be this social comparison and this like oh they're in front of me and they didn't used to be in front of me and you know and coming to terms with that and so we just talked about that that's normal and how you might you know, that you're going to have these thoughts and that how we deal with those, right? And this gets into self-talk and, you know, positive, you know, self-talk and, and different techniques we might use in training. Yeah. And I mean, on that note, actually, if you head over to consummateathlete.com, I just did a very nerdy post about how even superheroes have imposter syndrome. Uh, and, you know, a lot of that comes back to the the comparison situation. So, you know, you for me, I run with a lot of very, very strong women who do really, really amazing things. And I often find that, you know, if I start comparing my mileage to theirs or, you know, compare even, you know, I did this 100K, but my friend did 110K that day. Mm-hmm. So suddenly I was like a lot less excited about my 100K, which made no sense because it was a huge mile marker for me, right, a right. kilometer marker for me. Which just sounds like a great act, uh, way to use the uh, active insight that we talked about mm-hmm. last week as well, right? Where you should be doing 100 miles for some reason. And it's very common with clients where it's now everyone needs to do 200 kilometers or 300 kilometers right. or whatever that is in mileage, right? It just needs to keep going up. And, you know, that's not true for everyone, right? Like some people, myself included, just do not, despite the fact that we just ran for, you know, 13 hours, um, you know, I, I don't particularly enjoy those super long days, right? And so it's, it's just like, no, like, why do I need to do it? Right. And you go through, because you love your wife. Yes. Chasing the woman of my dreams, I guess, is it right? Um, But yeah, there's, there's not a need to do that for everyone. Right. It doesn't necessarily make you fitter or faster, depending on what the actual goal is. Right. Well, not only that, it just doesn't matter that someone else went out and did 110 if I did 100. Like they're right. they're doing 110 has nothing to do with mm-hmm. me doing 100. Like it shouldn't be yeah. a comparison anyway. Yeah. So anyway, I, I ruminated a bit on that and got a little bit nerdy with it. Uh, there's some, yeah, some cheesy superhero, superhero okay. references. So, you know, just putting it out there. Check that out at consummateathlete.com. And yeah, before we get too far down the superhero rabbit hole and I start waxing poetic about Booster Gold, let's get into this conversation with mental performance consultant Val Had. Enjoy. Val, let's just start with the the big question is, what exactly is a mental performance consultant? Because it's this term that I've started getting used to hearing around, but it's not one that I think most people have heard before. No, it's true. And I think that it would help if the title was more mental coach or mental performance coach, because when you're looking at this, this is really what we are. We are coaches. We're there to teach people mental skills, mental abilities. So um, whether you are beginners or high performance athletes, often what athletes have is they have their personal coach and their personal coach play many, uh, like wears many hats at first. Mm-hmm. So they are in charge of the technical skills, the tactical skills. They sometimes help with the strength and conditioning uh, with nutritional advice. 
So all of these are different areas of performance, but there are all specific skills associated with those areas of performance. So it's just a mental performance consultant. And we could even call, I could even call myself mental performance and health consultant, especially given the context that we're in. I think it's just, I'm here to teach people, to teach athletes certain mental skills that will help them perform better or be better, better uh, mentally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that mental component gets, gets left off for a lot of people or they, they think it, you, it only starts either like when there's a problem or when they're like at this super, super elite level. But to me, when I first started realizing that this is like a big field, I was like, oh, why is no, like, why isn't everyone doing this sort of right away? It's so true because it was never considered, well, it's starting slowly because there's more and more mental performance consultant, but it was never considered um, on the same playing field, basically, as physical skills, um, technical skills, and so on. It was just like, okay, you did not perform well. Clearly something didn't go well. Go talk to someone. They will help you manage your stress. Okay. Or again, you're this Olympic level athletes and you need to gain something, okay, well, go seek a mental performance consultant. And before there was more, we were more referred to as sports psychologists. So sports psychologists and mental performance consultants are not doing entirely the same thing. Yes, there's the focus on performance, but one, the psychologist is more dealing with clinical issues that mental performance consultants are not qualified to deal with. So we're literally mental performance coaches. So let's Mm -hmm. improve your motivation. Let's work on giving you tools so you can better concentrate, regulate your emotions. So that's what we do. Yes. Like, uh, to me, it's, it's like going, you know, it's even like going to the doctor for like your annual physical. You don't necessarily want to go just when something has gone wrong. Like you want to be doing these regular check-ins to keep things going well. Yep. And, um, it's all about being proactive. So basically saying, what can I do? Not because things went wrong, but what can I do today? What can I do every day to become a little bit better? So, and by better, it doesn't just mean like I can pedal faster on the bike or I can run faster. It's what can I do? So today I'm mentally stronger and I'm better equipped to face not just sport performances, but life in general. Yes. Yes. It's so funny. I was talking to someone else uh, kind of on a similar topic and I was saying like the, the crossover is so huge. So even for a master cyclist who maybe doesn't have like huge goals in the sport, it's like, yeah, well, if you can work on your, your mental game and like get rid of your, your race day jitters or like work on that motivation or whatever, that's going to translate to your ability to give a really good presentation or, you know, to be motivated to finish the damn report, that you know, is due at the end of the week. Yeah. Like it all crosses over into real life too. Like that's, that's the whole point of sport, right? Like that's why sport was invented. Because life is about performance. We're not talking about high level performance, but whether it's you're going to school and you want to get a certain grade, it's a performance. You're going to work and you have to meet some some sort of quota that your your boss identified. You have to give a performance. You are in a relationship and you want to make this relationship work. That's performance as well. So it's just performance doesn't mean high level, elite level performance. Life is about performing. We all have different goals, yes, but when you're trying to reach a goal, you're trying to um, to give a certain performance. So yes. that's why, like, it doesn't matter. You don't need to be a high level athlete to do it. Anyone would benefit. Even kids would actually benefit if we could teach them some some of those mental skills. They would benefit in school, in their sports, with their friends, in any areas of life, oh. basically. Speaking my language. I love it. Um, okay. We have to back up. How did you get interested in this? What is your, what is your background in athletics? What is your background in school? How did you come to this job? Um, I was um, heavily involved in sport growing up. So I was fortunate enough that uh, I tried so many different sports and I finally found one that I, I dedicated many, many years to uh, when I was seven and eight. Um, I focused on swimming. So I was a competitive swimmer for um, 10 years, basically. Um, I ended up retiring when I was 18 or 19. 
But um, spending, and back then swimmers spent like 20, 25 hours a week um, training for their sport. So I was, I've always had such a huge interest in sports. And growing up, I suffered a number of injuries, mostly shoulders with swimmers. So um, going into university and well, CGF and then university, my focus was really, I wanted to become a sport physiotherapist. So I actually started this to study in physiotherapy. Um, and realized that it wasn't for me at all. And at the same time, one of the main reasons why I had dropped out of sport was really my inability to properly manage my emotion. Um, and at the time, I never really realized it. It just happened. I was unhappy, too stressed. Um, it took a toll on me, and then I ended up retiring. So everything kind of fell into place at that point when I realized that physiotherapy wasn't for me what I had experienced. And at the same time, my sister was uh, playing hockey for McGill University and tremendous athlete, super talented athlete, yet someone with very little confidence in her ability. And I was like, I wish I could help her. So put all of this together. And then I actually dropped out of physiotherapy school and enrolled in kinesiology at University of Montreal with the goal of really studying sports psychology. So I did my three years at University of Montreal, and then I moved to Vancouver and did my master's and my PhD in, um, with focus in sport and exercise psychology there. Oh, um, awesome. So that's, I wasn't too, I, I knew that I always wanted to work with athletes, but then it really, um, I started working with athletes near the end of my PhD, um, more specifically. Okay. I love, it's so funny to me, the number of people who I've talked to have gotten into some kind of, whether it's like a mental performance consultant or sports psych, or even sports hypnotherapist in one like really interesting conversation, um, who started in physio or physical therapy and then realized like, oh wait, it's actually not like the body stuff that I thought like that I realized like needs the most fixing. It's actually more like the mental stuff that needs like the most, the most exercising, if you will. <laughs> exactly. And I think that it was just the combinations of seeing my sister and having this talented athlete that was limited in terms of the ability to, pro to deliver an optimal performance because mm -hmm. of the lack of confidence. And then I think that the whole journey of studying it allowed me to really understand what had happened with me in my sport. And I, I actually went back to swimming later on around the age of 25. And then with the knowledge that I had, like my experience with swimming was so much more positive. And then I think it brought peace a little bit and closure, mm -hmm. closure to my, um, to my sporting journey. So um, they oh, always say like people that go in psychology, they want to better understand themselves first. And I think that's probably, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's probably one of the reason I went in, in the field as well. Yeah. Now, I also want to address the fact that you have a PhD, because I think when a lot of people hear like mental performance consultant, they assume that like, oh, it's like, it's not a psychologist. So therefore, the person doesn't have this like advanced level of study and stuff. But like, holy crap, no, you have a PhD. Yes, I do. Not all mental performance consultants right. do. However, um, the field of sports psychology has really done a better job in the last 10, 15 years at standardizing basically um, the competency that the practitioners are like need in order to, to work with athletes. So um, they don't all need to have PhDs, but they have, there's a list of courses that you absolutely need. Um, most of them at upper level courses. Um, there's also like ethic courses that we need to take. There's supervision that we need to be under. So um, we're not necessarily licensed, but if we want to be part of certain associations, we need to meet those requirements. So it's not like someone can practice any sport for years and years and then call them, themselves all of a sudden mental performance consultant. That's no longer how it works. It used to be like that, though, mm -hmm. so, but it's changing for, for the, the positive. Yeah, that's why I wanted to touch on that, because I think a lot of people still like have that association of like, oh, sports psychologist, official, mental performance consultant, like unofficial. And it's like, no, that's not the case anymore. No, so. it's not. And I would say that the majority, like a, a big proportions of what we do is similar. Mm -hmm. So sports psychologists will also be interested in uh, mental performance. 
but they are just like if someone suffers from i don't know eating disorder or um some sort of severe form of anxiety or any kind of like um like depression so clinical problems basically clinical issues they have to work with a sports psychologist sure. but we know that this is not 100 of the athletes that we work with the majority of them are interested in mental skills they are focusing on mental performance and there's no known uh um clinical issues so mm -hmm. just work with mental performance consultant um and they will get or basically they will improve their mental skills mm -hmm. which we're hoping they can do before they then need a sports psychologist <laughs> yes exactly exactly so the like we we always laugh around but really our job is we want to equip people so they don't need a mental performance consultant and they no longer need a sports psychologist so that they can handle and they can manage anything that are that is thrown their way without the help of anyone else so that's our ultimate goal mm -hmm. i love it uh, and what what was your phd like what was your your project for that um so for phd i actually shifted to physical activity so oh, okay. my masters was focusing on swimming Um, I was looking at um, my main my my main expertise is coping mechanism and like um, how to appraise the situations and like so all of this so this is my my main area of expertise so for my master's degree I worked with athletes and looked at the impact of confidence on their ability to cope and eventually performances um, but then for my PhD I had the the opportunity to switch more to physical activity with uh, within the population of breast cancer survivors. So I moved away, stepped away from sport for a few years, even though I had some side projects that focus on sport. And then I just looked at how physical activity could be used to um, positively impact the perceptions of stress in breast cancer survivor, how they manage those stress, and then their quality of life. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Um, you mentioned coping mechanisms. So now I have to ask, What what do you do when when sports are your coping mechanism, but you're you're injured or for some reason like I I just finished like a 10 day recovery block where I didn't do anything and let me tell you it was like the most stressful 10 days of my life. <laughs> It's super tough and we have this so often. So people whose identity is around like being um, an exerciser or an athlete. So this is one like probably the worst thing that can happen if you get injured and you can no longer practice your sport which like you described for you, it's a coping mechanism. So this is why when we're looking at coping mechanism, what we encourage and what we try to develop are many ways to cope. And we all know, according to the literature, so there are different forms of coping mechanism, whether it's focusing more on the problem itself. So where you're um, exercising, for example, if you are overly anxious or if you, you had a bad day, but there are also other ways where you can focus more on trying to change the emotion. Uh, through maybe social support, which again was not super easy during the pandemic, but uh, reframing a situation so which doesn't necess necessitate necessarily the physical activity or the sport. So it's always develop a tool, but make sure that you have other tools that can do the same thing. So you have your preferred go-to, but you also have plan B and plan C in case your preferred go-to um, cannot be used, basically. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I need some more go-tos or at least like maybe I need some more like projects around the home to do. I, I like managed to do them all at the beginning of the pandemic and then I ran out. <laughs> I'm out of my secondary coping mechanism here. Um, okay, so you're, you're now at Cycling Canada. I mean, how did you end up going from swimming to working with cyclists? And I mean, what does what does that look like? Well, it's really funny because while being a mental performance consultant is only one of my job, I'm also a, a teacher in college. So I teach in psychology. So I get to teach about sports psychology as well. Oh, nice. So, um, so my days are not, is not just spent working for Cycling Canada, but I'm also um, working with students. Um, but um, basically, when you work in mental performance, obviously, like I started working with swimmers because that's like where my connections were. But then, like, it's a small field. So often athletes talk among, among them, themselves, practitioner as well. And then either, like, I'm being referred some athletes or someone from a different sport gets my name. So when I started in the field about, like, 15, 20 years ago, I feel like 
not 20 years, 15 years ago, I feel like um, it's slowly I had other sports. So I had like figure skater, hockey player, softball player. So I had a mix of different sports, which included a combination of individual athletes, um, team sports as well. So, and at first it was really mostly sports that I was familiar with. And I knew nothing about cycling before I started working for Cycling Canada. And then what happened is that I moved back to Quebec um, about 10 years ago. And then the coach for the para program, basically at Cycling Canada, was looking for a mental performance consultant. So this was after uh, the London Games. So in 2013, so he had identified that mental skills was an area where they could make some gains. So he started asking around and he's he, he's from Beaumont. So he's in Quebec asking around. And then he got my name from someone back in Vancouver and said, oh, I know someone who just moved back to Quebec and she speaks French as well, because there was at that time um, a number of athletes that were that French was their first language. Right. So um, I just got an email from a guy that I didn't know saying I'm working for Cycling Canada we're looking for someone. Would you be interested? So I met with him and I've been collaborating with him ever since. So since 2013. Oh, I love it. We're just taking a quick break from today's episode to talk to you about Inside Tracker. So you want to take charge of your health and wellness. That's why you're here. You're trying to do all the right things for your body to get more energy, better sleep, and a healthy immune system, and you probably want to improve your performance. And of course, live a healthy, adventurous life for a long time. But it's confusing out there. There's so much information and misinformation, and what works for someone else might not work for you. You want a clear picture of what your body looks like on the inside. A clear measure of whether your diet and exercise choices are helping or hurting and a clear idea of who and what to trust when it comes to health, wellness, and performance guidance. Founded in 2009, Inside Tracker is the ultra-personalized performance system that analyzes data from your blood, DNA, and fitness tracker to help you optimize your body and reach your health and wellness goals. The recommendations that come from the analysis are ultra-personalized, and you can choose the ones that are most compatible with your lifestyle. Each recommendation is directly linked to a peer-reviewed scientific publication. And Inside Tracker doesn't just show the normal biomarker zones, they show you the optimal biomarker zones and numbers that are best for your body. And now, for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com/consummate. That is insidetracker.com/consummate. All right, now back to the episode. So funny because you know often people will ask me like how do I how do I get your job because I, I write for all these different places and write all these books and everything and I was like you just have to talk to a lot of people because it's all gonna <laughs> then they know someone who knows someone who knows someone and then you get these emails <laughs> exactly it's a community right exactly so this is a, it's not like you can Google and there's a list that will pop up it's just like you talk to people and say do you have the name of someone and if this person is not available most likely we will have the names of other people that you can get in touch with. So uh, the, exactly. the world of sports is a, a small world. But, yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I realized it's like asking, like, what's your favorite workout to do? And it's like, well, it depends. But what do you think the most important mental skills that an endurance athlete should have are? Okay. Um, interesting because when we talk about mental skills, we've ident we identify three of them as being really the foundation of like, um, what we call the gold medal profile so that people need to have those in order to, to build more complex skills. So those skills are confidence, motivation, and resilience. So out of those three, even though they're all important, they're the foundation, I would pick for endurance athlete motivation as being one key um, mental skill. Why? Because if you're an endurance athlete, the number of hours that you have to spend on your bike, swimming, running is astonishing. So you have to do it for so long to build this foundation, basically, to, to get the volume done. Um, and especially for us living in Canada with winters, so it's not like you can do it outside or outdoors the entire time. I think that you will have to find different sources of motivation. So you will have to be good at maintaining motivation to maximize your training. So that's one. 
Mm-hmm. And then I would say other ones, um, emotional regulation is always important. Okay. And it's really, really big. We throw a bunch of things in this category, but if you are able to have a better control over your emotions and not let them control you, I think that this is important for not just endurance athletes, but any athletes in general. And then a final one that I can think of for endurance athlete, the ability to manage pain. And here we're not talking about like physical ability. Um, pain, pain management, in my opinion, is 90% and even like it could even be higher than this, a mental skill. So the ability to not focus on the pain, withdraw your attention from the pain a little bit so you can keep pushing through the pain and all and kind of disregard that the messages that your body sends you saying, stop, it's painful right now. It's not good. You want to kind of like block those messages so you can keep on pushing yourself. Mm-hmm. So I think that for endurance athlete motivation, emotional regulation, pain management, um, to me, those are probably the most important ones. I love that. Now on motivation, here's where I think it gets super interesting though, is because a lot of athletes are super motivated, but I think they almost go like when we talk about motivated, we don't mean motivated. Like you're going to go out and do an extra two hours from what you're supposed to be doing. To me, motivation means like you do your training plan. Like you actually follow the things that you're, you're like motivated to do it properly. You're motivated to do the recovery stuff. You're motivated to sleep enough. Like all of these things too, not just like go out and just like, you know, punch yourself into the ground every day. It's, it's easy to engage in motivated behaviors when your motivation is high. So we know this and it's easy. Oh, I feel really good today. Let's go two hours. And then you have to pay for it because you did not follow your training plan. And then you're more tired. And then your plan needs to be modified for the upcoming days because you haven't recovered as well. So, I mean, that's not that's yes, it's a motivated behavior. But is it a desirable motivated behavior? I would say no. So for me. Motivation is displayed on a daily basis. Motivation is, can you really on days that you really don't feel like doing your workout? Can you find it inside of you? Can you find other sources that will make you get on your bike, that will get you wake up at five so you can dive in the pool at 5.30 to do your workout? Can you find a motivation to say no to this little piece of cake at night because like, this is not the plan that you have identified with your nutritionist. So this is hard. Motivation will fluctuate. No one will be motivated every day of their life. And it's okay to not be motivated. But do you have to, the tools to still act in motivated ways, the days that you're not? So this is the skill that have to be developed. And all the athletes know. So I'm mostly working now with high-performance athletes and some next-gen athletes as well. But most of them know that if they skip a workout, it's not good for them. Yet, some will still skip it. So it's not because they don't know. It's just sometimes they just don't know what to do to get themselves on the bike or to Mm -hmm. actually get started. Often it's just get the momentum, get started, and then you will get through. Yep. Yep. I always say like, anytime I'm not motivated, I'm like, just put on your shoes and just like walk down the driveway because, and like, and then you can turn around and go home. Like, that's fine. But like, I've never turned around and gone home. (laughs) For for me, it's, we're so good when we're not motivated to procrastinate. Oh, I will do this and that I'll do it later. So for me, I identify a clear cutoff. So at 1230, at two, this is when I'm doing it. I stop Mm -hmm. whatever I'm doing and I'm doing it and I make myself do it. And like you said, once you start doing it, you might not enjoy the one hour, one hour and a half of your training session, but it's easier because you've started doing it and then you will be satisfied afterwards. So you will experience the satisfaction, even though you did it kicking and screaming the entire time. Mm -hmm. But that's part of what life is about. Like how many people wake up in the morning and they don't feel like going to work yet? They make themselves go to work as well. Mm -hmm. So so there are different ways to um, work on our motivation. Yeah. Okay. I've got to come back to the cake at night example because like this is my... This is my biggest issue is like my dessert. I have like the biggest sweet tooth in the world. And I am like fully aware that this is probably like the last like bad habit I have. 
is that I'm like a chocolate fiend at night. I'm aware of this. How do I motivate myself to stop doing that? <laughs> okay, good question. Um, because this is, we're talking about habits change, right? And this will not happen overnight. It's a process. Habits by definitions are things that are mostly automatic that we've been doing for a long time. So the first thing is literally like, don't go all out too fast. So don't try to cut it all out because at some point the cravings will take over and then you will not be able to sustain. So it's about developing. So I would say using the principle of motivation. So motivation is, is based on goals that you, that you set for yourself. Um, so set the goals of saying, okay, three days out of the seven or four, four days out of the seven, I will not do it. And then the other ones allow yourself to do it. And slowly, once you've reached this goal and it becomes not as challenging, then you can adapt the goal. But it's also important whenever we're talking about goals, we're talking about motivation, the reward is also important. So if you've been using dessert, if you've been using chocolate, it's your reward. So for a time being, keep using it, fix, set goals so you control a little bit, you try to start the change, and then ask yourself, what could be another reward? A reward that would make me feel good, that might not make me feel good, as good as eating a piece of chocolate, for example. Nothing but, does. <laughs> but yet that I could have some sort of satisfaction and allow yourself, if you've reached your goal, allow yourself this reward, um, like uh, once a week or, or something like this. I think it's important to celebrate what you've accomplished and it's a good boost to maintain motivated behaviors in the future. Mm -hmm. No, I like that a lot. Um, <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Sure I will, I will try sure that. Our, our team nutritionist would agree with everything that I've said, but A, we can have the discussion some other time. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, it's, it's interesting when you think about like all of the different ways you can come at that, right? Because like, you know, flip side, you might have like a nutritionist that's going to be like, ah, but like, what is your body trying to like tell you that you need? And like, perhaps it's this and I, like, or it's, it's more of this mental thing or, you know, a, a coach would have like a totally different perspective. So, you know, all of these things have so many different reasons for why we do, we have so many different motivations for why we do things. Yeah. And I would even say like putting things in context. So if your goal is to say, you know what, this is the habit that I want to change. Well, really think about changing this. What about the consequences? Would the consequences be more detrimental than the, the habits itself? So if stopping this creates anxiety, um, you're not happy, you're sad because this is the little pleasure that you had in life, I would say, well, maybe it's time to reconsider this because the consequences um, are more negative than the behavior or the habit itself. So it's always looking at the big picture and trying to make sense of what someone is trying to do. Oh, I love that because I think there's there's a lot of people who will maybe have like the one habit that they've decided is like the thing they have to fix and it just, it hurts them so much to fix it. Yeah. Like actually like this is kind of a good example because I've tried to do this so many times and like honestly I've realized like most of the time I've just kind of let that habit go because I just focus on other like good habits throughout the day. Like that's pretty much like the one thing I have left. So like, yeah. yes, it's a thing I'm working on, but like yeah, it, a lot of people, I think, just bang their heads against the wall on this one habit and completely ignore, like, the list of, like, 20 easier habits to change. Yeah, exactly. And so it's we're be, becoming, like, stuck or focused on one little thing and, and really missing the big picture here. So imagine you, you, and I'm not saying that this is what would happen, but you cut this habit out of your life and then you become cranky at night and then you get in fights with your husband and then it has an impact on your training, your other things in your life. So you're like, oh, OK, so was it really a good thing? Maybe I wasn't ready yet. Maybe I hadn't thought about how to replace this habit with something else. So I think that in, in mental performance, one of the first skill or one of the things that is often underestimated is the ability to reflect and the self-awareness that we need. So really, okay, look at the picture, how important, how does it impact you? What would you like to do? So these are questions. Sometimes I have people coming to me and they're like, okay, I want this. Give me this. <laughs> yes, but why do you feel this? Have you considered all your options? So it's really one, one important skill as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. 
Um, okay, so that was just kind of talking about a bit of like subtracting. And now as far as like adding habits, where do you fall on like meditation and gratitude journaling and journaling in general? Do you have any like favorite of those sort of like trend, currently trendy uh, <laughs> things? Um, they all fall under the category of mindfulness. And mindfulness really gained some speed and momentum in the last five, 10 years. So mm -hmm. um in, in mental performance, we've switched from trying to control thoughts, trying to control emotions to recognizing them, and then refocusing on the emotions or the thoughts that would be more beneficial. So becoming, staying in the present moment, basically. So whether it's meditation, whether it's journaling, whether it's like a gratitude journal, self-compassion, to me, these all have the same goal, and it's to become mindful. So whenever I work with athletes, it's really find the most comfortable shoes for you. So, oh, yeah, but I read about meditation. Okay, well, try it. And then we'll talk about how well, like, did they like it? Did it go well? So what did you think of it? And some of them are like, oh, I, it's just not for me. And it's okay. Like, it might not be the first go-to. Let's explore something else. They could be other breeding technique. They could be journaling. They could be all kinds of other things that you can try and find something that fits. It doesn't mean that we'll not go back to meditation or uh, any of those, but once we have developed the ability to be mindful, it's easier afterwards to add on, to add some skills and then explore other things. But I'm telling you, if I try to sell, okay, you have to meditate to all the athletes, I don't think that many of them would come back for a second, <laughs> for a second meeting. So I usually try, I make suggestions, they try, if they don't like, we explore other things. So do I have any favorite ones? Not necessarily. I mean, mm -hmm. the foundation for me, like most of what you've described revolves around like breeding exercises, breeding capacity. It's the foundations of many things. Um, so I will make sure that they understand this, that they are comfortable um, breeding well, because I know they can breathe. We all do, but it's about like breathing well. I think it's a foundations of many things as well. Yes, definitely. Um, okay. As far as like daily, weekly habits, I mean, I know it's it's obviously like you say going to vary from like what an athlete's going to do. But is there amount is there an amount of time or like a number of things people should be doing, sort of like on a daily or weekly basis that they should be developing or like focusing on like the mental side of things? It's it's always I say you have to do it consistently. So I think that consistency is a key word in, a, in something that we often don't find when we talk to athletes about uh, mental, mental performance, mental skills. So we ask them, so how much time do you spend practicing your sport? And they will give you a number of hours. How much time do you spend working on strength and conditioning? And they will give you something. How about mental training? And often it's zero they will start thinking about it two weeks before an event, a week before an event, and then all of a sudden more stress is already a little bit higher because you're getting closer to the event. And now they're like, okay, now I want to visualize. I want to do this, I want to do that. But the skill itself hasn't been developed properly because we know that development has to happen when stress is low. So do you have to spend one hour every day developing mental skills? Obviously not, no one will do that. But could, we, could you aim for 10, 15 minutes, four times a week? Well, it would be a good, a good place to start. And I tell my athletes, if you want to do it, integrate it to something you're already doing. So don't try to find an additional 10 to 15 minutes because often we will look at our schedule and we're like, nope, there's no place. It doesn't fit in my schedule. Mm -hmm. So do it when you're warming up. Do it when you're cooling down. Or when you're, when you're doing your cool down, do it when you're stretching. So you can very much meditate, engage in breathing exercises, visualize when you're stretching. So this way, you're not, you don't need that additional time. You just integrate it to your um, training session, basically. Yes, I love that. I think, yeah, for me, part of that was like turning off the the podcast or music just for like a little bit of my run. Like it doesn't have to be the whole thing in silence, but like 15 minutes. Yeah. Then I actually have to like listen to myself breathe and think my own thoughts and like sit with them. Exactly. 
it might be a little bit uh, harder to do journaling while you're yeah, a little hard. Yeah. But there are some skills where you would need a dedicated um, time basically during the day to do it. But many skills you can just integrate. So if you don't know where to start and if you think that one of the biggest challenge will be to um, keep doing it after a few days, try to integrate. That will that would be the easiest, easiest way to do it. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's funny. Peter Peter actually suggests that his athletes do their journaling uh, like while stretching because he actually says just use Siri to like dictate your comments yep. right into Training Peaks, sure. and it's amazing how many more people end up commenting when they realize that they can do it that way. So sure. even journaling, like you don't need a pencil and paper. You can just if you have like. Heck, I actually had an Apple watch for a while because I'd be running and I'd think of things and I'd like say it into it to record a note. Very true. So it's true if you're by yourself training, if you're with other people, you probably don't want other people to hear what you're, what you're recording. Yep. yep. <laughs> because a lot of it is like, oh, the writing phase. So some, depending on who you are, you will need to write. The benefits yep. will really come down from putting things on paper and writing. Other people, just the audio form. But now with technology, it's limitless. Like mm-hmm. we have so many possibilities of different ways, different different apps that we can use. So it's um, it's pretty impressive. Yep, yep. Heck, you know what? You can get a you can get like a, a shower whiteboard. I actually have one of these. So you're in the shower and you can write stuff down in the shower. You can just take a picture of that. There's your notes. Like boom, you've showered and journaled. <laughs> yes. But then, like, in terms of the mindfulness principle of being in the present moment, as long as your, your whiteboard doesn't include your day and to do and the to-dos of your day, stick in the present moment. Reflect on your thoughts, things like this. But I, I think it's important. It's important to, even though now we can combine, we can do more than one things at the same time, I think it's important not to project ourselves too much in the future or even in the past, but make ourselves stay in the present moment. Yes, that is a very important caveat to that. Excellent point. <laughs> um, okay, so the the question I was actually thinking about asking you as I was like realizing, like, I'm like, okay, you work mostly with like high performance athletes. I mean, what is the do? You, what is like the main difference between working with these like high performance athletes versus like working with say more of like a masters or like recreational athlete? Or, I mean, do we really all just have the same kind of like the same mental hurdles just at very like to varying degrees? I, I, I think it's you have the right. The, you've described it perfectly. So I think that um, some of the, the, the problems or some of the hurdles or the challenges that athletes will face, some of them are very similar. So balancing sport and, and families and life and friends. So that's one. So there are similarities. But I mean, in terms of mental skills, the mental skills are used not for a specific issue. They're tools that you can use in many different contexts. So if we're developing the ability to properly focus and block out distraction, well, as we, as we talked about earlier in, this, in, in, the, in our discussion, well, when you work, when you interact with people, you don't want to be distracted. When you're having a conversation with your friends, you don't want to be distracted by cars driving by and then like what people are saying around you. You want to be able to block this out and focus. So you high-performance athlete will need to block out distraction. The type of distraction might be different, but they will be distractions indeed. Same thing with masters, same thing with um, recreational or even youth. So they will need to improve this ability. They will need to learn how to regulate their emotion. Where and when they will need to regulate will be different. So one, it might be at the World Cup. The other ones could be at like a provincial competition. But in both cases, goals are involved. Competitors are involved. So it's just sometimes that the master's athletes, their carding doesn't necessarily depend on the performance. So I mean, there are small differences, but the skills would benefit anyone in any context. Yes. I'm so glad you mentioned the the focus thing. It's, I mean, such a huge issue right now for sure. Um, and I mean, for, I think especially for recreational or amateur athletes, we'll say is like, you know, I need to focus on 
for me today, like I needed to focus on this podcast. I needed to focus on writing an article before this podcast. I'm going to need to focus on writing another article after the podcast and, you know, doing a webinar tonight and also focusing on my training while I'm doing the training. So I think, you know, amateurs arguably even have more focus demands on their time, like more of those like bubbles floating around them. So that ability becomes even more important. Yeah. And, for getting and, through the day. and what you described, we call them like the identities. So everybody has more than one identity. So um, you are an athlete, you are a worker, you are the, someone's brother or someone's sister. You have, you are the partner, you have mother, father. So all of these are identities that you need to balance. So add like, so if you have an um, amateur athlete, basically who's, um, an athlete, but also a worker because they're not, they don't make a living. So they even have more challenges to balance everything out and make sure that like, oh, they don't give too much priority to this because then that, that other identity will suffer a little bit. Professional athletes often, they are friends and sisters and, and brothers and so on, but training is their job. Um, which is a little bit different with their athlete because some of our high performance athletes in paracycling, they also have jobs. So it becomes really tricky to find kind of like a way to balance and manage everything and be successful in all of them. So sometimes it's trade-off negotiation, um, but it's, it's part of the challenge. Definitely. Yeah. It's funny. I, we actually have a, a productivity expert coming on the podcast pretty soon. Um, and I already recorded that interview and we were talking about the importance of like kind of combining all of your identities into one calendar because so many people will have like their training peaks is here and it's on this desktop. And then this desktop has their like work to do list. And then over here is like the family calendar. And they're just in like these, you know, separate places for each identity. And you're like, man, if they're not all in one place where I can sort of see them all laid out and like, here's like the day of like all of these identities together, it's really hard to be able to maintain all of those identities. True. And it's hard at some point as well to realize what I'm trying to do won't be possible. Yeah. It like it, it's all on one calendar and it's just not possible for yeah. me to do so it's it's a little bit like a grief process as well of having to let something go and like what is it um so it's some sometimes like i i need to have conversations like this with the athletes because tough decisions need to be made and um it's not easy when you're a high when you're a competitor and you, you want to perform you want to perform in everything but mm -hmm. sometimes it's just not possible yes um i mean so one of the one of the final things I actually want to talk to you about is how you, how have you gotten athletes through this past like 16 months? I feel like this must have been like the greatest challenge you've ever really had between like motivation and then last year's like Olympics getting canceled and like the Olympics being on. But like, are they really on? Are we sure they're on? Maybe they're on. <laughs> like, it's I been can't even imagine. Yeah, it's been super tough and. Like most of the athletes that I work with in the pair program in Cycling Canada, we have a decentralized program. So um, I see the athletes only a few times a year. Often it's a competition. They have a few training camps here and there, but most of the time they're used to training on their own at home. So I would say not that they were lucky, but maybe they were the luckiest um, athletes because they were already independent. So their training routine hasn't changed. Like, never really changed much. Um, it was mostly the fact that there were no competitions. So at some point it was um, the, the doubt surrounding whether or not the Olympics would go on, but also the doubts, the, the doubts that some of, some of them had um, were not competing. Other nations are competing. So are we progressing like everybody else? Would we be surprised the next time that we are actually um, in one place competing against one another? So there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, it is a little bit cliche, but like we heard so much during the last 15 months saying focus on the controllable. So always going back. Um, I think that we try to be as, and when I say we, I mean the team, the program, the pair program, uh, try to be as transparent as possible tell them the options that were on the table, even though two days later, the, these options could be completely different. I think we kept them in the loop. Um, we tried to have some sort of social component as well. So Zoom calls where we would play games, where um, 
other calls we would um, teach them so focus on one topic but bringing the athletes together and feeling a sense of connection really is crucial to motivation as well um, so everybody so it's it's just been a tremendous tremendous effort by everybody on the team and the athletes have been pretty good I would have to say at like maintaining their training and not um, at being able to refocus on something else and adapting. So our athletes have dem demonstrated a lot of resilience. Um, and I don't know whether it's it's unique, not unique, but like it's um, the fact that many of our athletes are para-athletes who suffered injury um, in their lives. And then so they already had to overcome so many challenges. So right. I think that it allows them as well to put some perspective in what they're looking looking at. But um it's been it's not been easy it's been it's been hard for mental health for the mental health as well and everybody's mental health mm -hmm. yeah definitely uh all right and the last thing i want to ask you is this is kind of like a weird i'm probably gonna phrase this really poorly so i'm sorry um but so i traditionally end up writing the like new year new you pieces for canadian cycling magazine i've written them for the past like five years so i'm always looking for sort of a new take on you know goal setting and goal achieving and all of that kind of stuff sure. uh, because i i find it fascinating so i think this what i kind of want to hear from you is we know how, you know, we, we talk on the podcast all the time about outcome versus process goals and how to goal set and all of that. But do you have any tips for how to actually stick to the goals? Like, how often should we be like reviewing them? Should we be coming back to them? When do we reset them? Just like, how do how do we actually make the goal happen? Like after we've set it? Oh, man, this is the... the the million dollar question exactly because um this is often everybody can set goals it doesn't necessarily mean that they're good goals but exactly but then like where's the impact on motivation and on like behavior change basically because often they're on the piece of paper and we're like okay um they're there i did my job and then nothing happens i think that the biggest part the biggest piece that we miss is really reassessing so evaluating following through with those um so it's not necessarily fun um, when when it's possible for to have other people remind you and really say, okay, let's sit down now in two months, or even I would say if you're starting with goal setting, do it sooner because in two months you might have forgotten some of the goals. But like do it like set set goals and then two weeks later ask ask yourself, did it do anything for me? Did it motivate me? Were they good goals? Because often we set goals that we feel we have to, but they're not necessarily impactful. So early on, set your goals, not too long after, revisit. Are you still sticking to them? Or do they have a positive impact on you? If the answer is no, switch. Find other ones. Be creative in your goals. Um, the principle of setting like long-term goals where you don't really see when you'll be able to achieve them, that's also detrimental. You need shorter term goals. Get in the habit maybe of saying, okay, what about weekly goal? Wake up this morning and say, okay, I want to achieve this before the end of the day and see whether this will be a little bit more impactful than having goals to revisit every, every few weeks or every, every few months. So don't get stuck in the principle of goal setting. Explore, be curious. Um, one goal that athletes, I would love if the athletes could come up with those goals more often, but to me, like develop your curiosity mindset. So don't wait for people to tell you what to do. Read, go say, okay, to this, this month, I want to read about a new topic in mental performance or nutrition, and then talk about it with other people. So explore, be a student of the sport. So I be creative, creative with your, your goal. And if they don't do anything for you, don't stick to those because they will, they will have no benefits coming out of the process. Oh, fabulous answer. I love your, your point you made about like ha having someone who you can, you know, talk to about where you're at with them. Um, when I was on Canadian Cycling's podcast talking about last year's goal setting article. Um, he he mentioned he was like, so should I tell my friends on Facebook what I'm doing? And I was like, Matt, no one cares about your face. Like, no one on there is gonna care. Like, 
No one will will remind you of them. You have to have like the one or two people that you actually like have the conversation with. (laughs) It was actually probably like the meanest thing I've ever said because I was like, no one cares about your Facebook. But it's so true. You put it up once and everyone's like, oh, wow, you're so brave for setting that goal. Like, well done you. And you like kind of already have the pat on the back for basically achieving it without actually doing it. But no one's going to, no one is looking at it and is like, putting in my calendar to like three months later, email Matt and see if he's done the thing. No, exactly. So this is like a good point. Share it with a couple of people. Um, Make your goals visible. Okay. Because like having them in the file on your computer where like, well, you will never open it. Sometimes you might forget those. So post it um, different places so you can be reminded once a day. But again, like take ownership. You are responsible. So if you want to reassess your goal, okay, put an alarm in your phone two weeks in, in for two weeks. Like two weeks later, alarm, reassess your goal. You can do this yourself. You don't necessarily ha- need someone to watch over and say, okay, I think that you've achieved this goal. No, develop your own abilities to do it yourself, to reflect on your journey and on the process. So su- such a good point. Post it on Facebook, people will say, oh, great goals. Two months later, they will not come back and say, hey, how are those goals going? No, forget about it. Yes. Oh, so good. Oh my gosh. I feel like I could just ask you a billion and one more questions. So we might have to like have you back on with, with audience questions because we could do this all day. Um, but is there, is there anywhere where people can kind of keep up with what you're doing or what Cycling Canada is up to or anywhere uh, on the interwebs? I have, uh, I have to be honest, like I'm not very um, active on social media or anything like this. So um, I think that's actually a plus. It's like so refreshing to, to have someone who isn't. Like, yeah, exactly. And the fact that like um, with mental performance, there's a lot of like confidentiality issues as well. So like you want to be careful, confidentiality, privacy issues. So, um, but I mean, if they want to keep up with the pair program, I think that just following Cycling Canada on either Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, so they will get updates um, here and there. If not, um, I'm... I wouldn't say old fashioned, but I guess that the best way to reach me is by email. Well, Val, thank you so much for doing this. This was so much fun. I, yeah, you had so many fabulous answers. I feel like I'm just going to be quoting this for the rest of my life. So thank you so much. Well, you are very welcome. It was a thank you for having me. It was a super fun to have this uh, conversation with you. Thanks so much for tuning into the Consummate Athlete Podcast. If you enjoyed this or any of our past episodes, do us a solid and leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And check out our book, Becoming a Consummate Athlete, over at consummateathlete.com. Questions or comments? Find us over on Instagram, at consummateathlete, and we will see you next week.